We are in the last week of our series called So They Would Know. And uh, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we know that, or you hopefully know that we've been talking about some really specific issues um, related to families or issues that families will have to address or navigate at some point in time. Um, and so we're going to continue that this week. If, if last week's sermon would have gotten me in trouble outside of these walls, this week's sermon might get me in trouble inside these walls. Okay? So uh, to start it off, and uh, I think it was 2017, uh, I was on staff at a different church, and we went to this large, really well-known church in Texas for like a workshop conference type thing. And uh, there's about 100 or so pastors, ministry leaders here at this church. And, uh, you know, we're kind of waiting for the event to begin. And while we're waiting, the lead pastor of this church, very well known, very influential, like his sermons are downloaded like thousands, hundreds of thousands of times maybe. Um, it's a very well known pastor, author. He, he comes in, you know, and uh, kind of everybody notices when he walks in the room, but he, he starts introducing himself to, uh, to the different tables of people. We were all sitting around tables. And so he walks up to our table and he introduces himself as if we didn't know who he was, um, which was, you know, kind of humble of the guy. I appreciate that. But uh, he introduces himself. And then um, once he, you know, he realized we were from Kentucky, he started asking questions. Uh, but I was not prepared for his first question. Okay, I, I thought maybe he's going to talk about, ask about horses, maybe Kentucky basketball, right? I was really surprised whenever his first question, if he learned we were from Kentucky, his first question was something to the effect of, okay, you guys are from Kentucky, so what do you guys think about bourbon? Do you like it or do you think it's evil? So being the good church staff that we were, we just turned to our lead pastor and we're like, why don't you take this one? Okay? Um, so, right? So, but how would you answer that question? Right? How would you answer the question if, you know, somebody comes to you and says, hey, what do you think about bourbon? Is it, do you like it or is it evil? All right, then let's back up. Maybe bourbon's not your thing because you know how Bardstown smells. And so you're like, no thanks. Okay, what about just alcohol in general? If somebody were to come to you, what do you think of alcohol? You like it or is it evil? Okay, and then, and then more specifically, let's pretend, all right, let's, let's get more general. Let's pretend it's not just some random dude on the street. Let's pretend it's your kids, all right, your grandkids. They come to you and they say, hey, is alcohol evil? Right, what, or is it, like, what, what would you say to them? Right, is alcohol okay? Is it sometimes okay? Is it never okay? How would you answer that question? And so um, here, here's what I know. The way that, oftentimes the way that we were raised influences the way that we raise our kids, right? For better or for worse. So when it comes to that question, there's a good chance that uh, some of you were raised to believe alcohol was evil, sinful, wicked, detestable, and that's just the way that you've decided you're going to carry on and, and raise your family and your kids and your grandkids and that sort of thing, right? Maybe that's you. Or maybe on the flip side, because you were raised to believe it was evil and wicked and sinful, the moment that you got a little freedom, you were like, all right, I'm going to let my hair down a little bit, right? And then maybe on the other hand, maybe you... Uh, maybe you were raised where like alcohol was perfectly acceptable, if not even celebrated at times. And so that's just the way that you've raised your family, raised your kids. Right? Maybe that's what the place that alcohol has in your home. 
Or again, maybe on the flip side, maybe because that was the way you were raised, uh, you experienced some real trauma because of that. And so you just decided, you know what? We're just going to avoid it, stay away from it. Right? I mean, we could go all over the spectrum on this. Okay? But what I want to do this morning, like, we're talking about like, so they would know. Our kids raising the next generation. It's our God-appointed task right, to raise uh, the next generation in the, the discipline and instruction of the Lord is what Paul says in Ephesians 6. And so, yes, we want to do that with kind of Bible stories and characters and Right? But also, part of our job is to raise the next generation in the really practical matters of what it means to live a life that's honoring, pleasing to the Lord, and the, to raise our children in the, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so, um, that's the plan this morning. Okay? We're just going to talk about what the Bible honestly says about alcohol. Okay? And listen, it is not lost on me that if there were ever a sermon that might get me in trouble in a Baptist church, it is this one. Okay? And so, just here's what I'll say up front. If at any point you're like, I can't believe this guy, I need to have a word with him, I won't invite you into that. Right? Send me an email. Zach.Alexander <laughs> at vcbc.org. All right? And we'll set up a time to chat. Okay? So, with that said, let's buckle up, brace for impact. You ready? Number one, I do have three points for you, so it's at least a little Baptist sermon, okay? Number one, you might want to hang on for a second, for real. Drinking alcohol is not always a sin. Okay, I, was bra- I didn't know what was coming back at me that way, so I'm just kind of bracing for it. Listen, I've, I've been in the Baptist game for 36 years, almost 36 years now, uh, the last almost 11 of which I've been on staff at a Baptist church, employed by a Baptist church. Uh, And so here's what I know. That statement, for me to stand up here and say drinking alcohol is not always a sin, here's what I know, is that's going to elicit potentially two responses. The first one being, he's not qualified to be a pastor. Okay? That may be one end of the spectrum, okay? And then maybe the other end of the spectrum is like, all right, that's my kind of pastor, all right? It's my kind of church. How do I join? Okay, I know that that can be one of those two responses. And if that's your response, either way, I would just say, hang with me because I have more things to say that will probably offend both of you, both sides of the spectrum, okay? My job as a pastor, I just try to offend everyone equally, Okay, so back to the original point. Scripture does not mandate a universal abstaining from alcohol. If we're reading the Bible seriously, reading the Bible in context, reading the Bible for what it actually is saying and not just what we want it to say one way or the other. Right. You will not find a passage or an argument in the Bible that universally says do not drink alcohol. Like, it just doesn't exist in here. Okay? In fact, here's some of what you'll find. All right, let me get my, my notes here. I've got, got a lot of passages this morning, all right? Deuteronomy 14. Now, here's what you'd find. This is the book of Deuteronomy. is, is the retelling of the law. Uh, and, and what you'd find in Deuteronomy 14 is 
is this. It says, then you shall, he's talking to the people of Israel, Moses recounting law. Then you shall turn it, this is your, your tithes, your offerings in context, into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. In other words, God's law told the people of Israel, hey, you can convert your tithes, which would have been like their grain and their different offerings, convert that to money, go use that money, buy yourself some wine, and enjoy. Right? You don't hear that sermon a lot in Baptist churches. Okay. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, there's places where God talks about wine being like a blessing for his people. Right? Amos chapter 9, 14. Right? Amos prophesies. He says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Right? Or again in, in the book of Joel, chapter 2, verses 22, sorry, 23 and 24. It says, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. Okay, then you skip to the pages of the New Testament. What you see are things like Jesus uh, turning the water into Welch's grape juice. That's right. Okay? No, it's wine. All right, now listen. The point, to be clear, the point of Jesus turning water into wine is not, wine's not the point. The point is that Jesus is more powerful Right? He has power over the supernat like supernatural power over creation. This is, all right, so the point is not, but the fact that, that Jesus turned 100 plus gallons of water into like the best wine seems to suggest that Jesus did not necessarily disapprove of wine. Okay? Even if you want to get really controversial, there's scripture that seems to suggest that Jesus even drank wine. Matthew 11, verse 18. These are Jesus' words. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man, which is Jesus referring to himself, came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, as you can imagine, there's some resistance to this. Maybe you feel it here this morning, right? Maybe you're like, who is this guy? Okay. And so there's been like various sort of arguments kind of made throughout history to sort of minimize some of the, the biblical references to alcohol. One of those is that uh, there, there's an argument that, well, really the wine in the Bible is really more like our grape juice today, okay? Um, you know, wasn't really intoxicating. The only problem with that is that the Bible warns against the dangers of wine, which we're going to get to in a minute, Okay? I, I, like I, the Bible warns against overindulging in, in wine, so it can't be just grape juice, because the last time I checked, grape juice isn't intoxicating. Right? I'm confident that I would have figured that out in college if it was. Okay? Another argument is that the wine in biblical times were, uh, it was so diluted that it was very different than uh, the standard that we would you know, we would apply to alcohol today. And, and that actually probably is true. It probably was diluted a lot. Okay, it's probably not the same strength as it was today. 
But regardless of the like alcohol by volume content, it's still alcohol. And you still drink too much of it, you get drunk. Okay, that's point the Bible's going to make. So the point remains, drinking alcohol is not strictly prohibited in the Bible. And so therefore, it is not always a sin. Okay, but that's not all the Bible has to say about alcohol. Here's the second point. Right, getting drunk is always a sin. Okay? So where the Bible doesn't strictly prohibit alcohol, it does strictly prohibit drunkenness. Here's 1 Corinthians 6. I actually referenced this verse last week. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous, circle that word unrighteous, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul says a similar thing in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 5, verse 19. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you've got drunkenness equated with unrighteousness, equated with works of, of the flesh. Both of those things in these two different passages, Paul saying, hey, these things, like if, if this is your life, like your life is marked by these things, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right? Drunkenness on that list. And then Paul again in the book of Ephesians, maybe the most explicit warning against drunkenness. Right? Ephesians 5, 17. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, then you go on from these sort of explicit warnings. You go to, to things like um, where Paul begins to outline the sort of character and the, the character qualities of uh, qualifications for elders and pastors and overseers. Right in 1 Timothy uh, 3, verses 2 and 3. Now this is Paul outlining, here's what you got to be to be qualified as a leader, a pastor, an overseer, an elder in the church. It says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, and in verse 3, not a drunkard. Okay, this similar thing in Titus 1 verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard. All right, similar qualifications for those in the office of deacon. 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine. All right, so according to Paul, being known for being characterized as a drunkard or being given to drunkenness disqualifies an individual from leadership in the church because, for several reasons, okay, but because the most, like the most obvious reason is that drunkenness is a sin, 
And to put a person in a position of leadership is to say, hey, follow their example. And you don't want to put a person in a position of leadership as a pastor, elder, overseer, as a deacon. You don't want to put that person in a, in a place where people are going to look at them and say, I, that's what I should strive to be like if they're known as a drunkard. Right? That's not the example you want to set for your church. Okay, so, Scripture never explicitly prohibits all drinking. Okay? Scripture always prohibits drunkenness, but then there's still more. Okay, and this is the third point. Scripture warns against the dangers of alcohol. Right, scripture warns against, over and over again, the dangers of alcohol. Here's just a, a couple of places from the book of Proverbs. Um, Proverbs known for being a book of wisdom, kind of imparting Wisdom, much of it written by Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, not named Jesus. Proverbs 20, verse 1. It says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. All right, so you got the, the point here from Proverbs is that, that alcohol has this propensity to lead us astray. Right, And the wisdom is that being under the influence of alcohol doesn't typically lead to a lot of great decisions. Right? When, when people reflect on their, just, their most cherished, uh, their best memories of life, right? they look back on times and are like, oh, that was one of the best decisions I ever made, one of the best things I've ever done. Very few of those moments begin with jello shots and keg stands. Okay? Right, like, to be real. Right, excessive drinking, ten rounds with Jose Cuervo, right, tends to uh, lead to a lot of poor decisions and regrets. Right, it does. Right, if not in the moment, certainly the next morning. Okay, but here, there's more. Proverbs thirty-one, verses four and five. It says, "It is not for kings, O Lemuel." It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. And the, the wisdom here is that it is nearly impossible right, for, for leadership under the influence of, of uh, alcohol to make wise, well-informed decisions. Right, wherever you land on drinking or alcohol, I think we all would agree that if you'd be less inclined to vote for a guy who shows up at the presidential debate with slurred speech. Now, aside, it would make the debates far more entertaining. Okay? But you're not voting for that guy. Why? Because you can't, like, you're not trusting someone that's given over to drunkenness to lead anything of significance. Right, because you don't, you don't lead with wisdom when you're under the influence. You don't make wise decisions when you're under the influence. Right? And then, like beyond these sort of explicit references you know, from the Bible, there's countless stories, Old Testament, New Testament, of people being uh, given over to alcohol and just doing foolish things. Right? I, I joke about it before, but the story of Noah, you remember how that ends? I talked about it a couple weeks ago. 
Right? We got Noah, this great, you know, saves humanity from the flood. His story ends with him passed out drunk and naked under a tree. Right? There's like it's there's countless examples of the dangers of alcohol. There's countless warnings in the Bible about the importance of being self-controlled, sober-minded. You can't be self-controlled and sober-minded when you're intoxicated. Right? Paul says, be filled. He says, do not get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. It's, it's really hard to be in line, in touch with what the Spirit is doing and saying and how he's leading like when, when you can't walk a straight line. So there's plenty of warnings about the dangers of alcohol. Now, at this point, right, the argument for a lot of people would be, well, listen, given the danger of alcohol, and it is dangerous, then like, believers just shouldn't drink at all, period. End of discussion. And I would say, for many, if not most believers, that probably is wise counsel. Okay? But, but here's why we can't say, here's why we can't follow that logic and just say, well, if, there's, if it's dangerous, then we just shouldn't do it at all. Because um, you follow that logic, the Bible talks a lot more about the dangers of money than it does about alcohol. And I don't think any of us in here would be like, well, if I have too much money, I might be given over to materialism, so I'm just not going to make any money. You see the logic there? Right? Or, or uh, we can do this with any number of things. Right? Last week, we talked about God's design for sex and sexuality. Right? You could say, well, there's the danger of being driven by my sexual desires is so great. It's too great. Don't want to mess with that. I'm not going to have sex. Right? That logic doesn't work. With, with food. Right? Gluttony is a sin. Right? And, and there's... I don't think any of us in here would be like, you know what? There's too much of a temptation to be a glutton. I'm not going to eat food. This is a Baptist church, man. We don't do anything without food involved. Right? So my, my, my point is like... Here's a little, a little nugget. Most of the things that we kind of inherently look at and be like, that's sinful, that's sinful, that's sinful. As God intended it, not sinful. But because we have warped, distorted, sinful hearts that are driven by sinful compulsions. We take these things that God created and gave to his creation and we pursue them and use them and abuse them in really sinful ways. Right? That's, that's the truth. That's the reality. Money isn't sinful. Sex isn't sinful. Right? Alcohol isn't sinful. Food isn't sinful. Our hearts are sinful. That's what we talked about last week. At the problem, the heart of the problem is the problem of the human heart. Right? That's why Jesus says this in Matthew 15, verse 11. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it's what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Because what comes out of us reveals like the condition of our hearts. Right? Our hearts, and this is important, our hearts are not transformed from the outside in. Right? So you can put up a lot of rules and a lot of uh, do this, a lot of hoops to jump through, and that won't change your heart. 
So what we need is not rules that prohibit drinking or money or sex or food. What we need are hearts that are transformed by the Spirit of God, transforms our desires internally. And only the gospel does that. Right? Only the gospel does that. When we believe the gospel, right, we believe that Jesus died on the cross. Well, back up. We believe that we're sinful, that we need a Savior. We believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins to save us from our sins. The Bible teaches that we are then indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Right? And part of what that Spirit does uh, is, is it teaches us and trains us and, and guides us uh, and, and conforms us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ from one degree of glory to another. Like it changes our desires from the inside out. Right? That's how the Spirit does His work. Right? To, to align our desires with, with those of, of Jesus. Right? And listen, that's what the Bible calls sanctification. That is a slow, painful work. Right? Anybody attest to that? Test like that takes a while. Yeah? Anybody like not as far along as you thought you would be at this point? Yes. Okay, but praise God, man, he's faithful to finish what he started. Right? That's the promise in, in Philippians, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Now, let's bring it back and get really practical. Okay, put some handles on it. What do we do with all this? Right? If, if drinking alcohol is not always sinful, if getting drunk is always sinful, and if the Bible warns quite a bit about the dangers of being led astray by alcohol, like what do we actually do with that? Okay, and, and here's, put my cards on the table. Again, I don't know if that's a reference I can use in a Baptist church, but here we are. <laughs> We've gone too far to look back at this point. My card's on the table. I do not have an agenda this morning. I, I don't have an ax to grind I don't have a soapbox to stand on. Uh, I'm not trying to like set up a bully pulpit here as if anybody would be intimidated by 160 pounds of gangling arms and legs. Okay? Here, here's, to be really transparent, here's what I think. I think this is an area where good Christians disagree because it's in the area of Christian freedom. And so I think my job in these areas where there's Christian freedom is to do my very best to lay before you what the Bible actually says and let you form your convictions based on your conscience and the Spirit's promptings. Okay, so that's, that's what I want to do this morning, but I want to give you a few questions for you to ask, answer, consider, meditate on as you kind of navigate this issue in your own home, in your own life, with your own family. All right, first question is this. What's the wise thing to do? What's the wise thing to do? This is Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16. Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And if you're keeping track, it's right after this, Paul goes on to talk about do not get drunk with wine. But his point is to walk in wisdom, right? to do what is wise. So the question for you is when it comes to drinking or the use of alcohol in your family, in your home, what's wise? What's the wise thing to do? Not just what's legal, not just what's permissible, but based on your past experiences, 
your current circumstances, your future hopes and dreams, what's the wise thing to do? So let me prompt you with a couple things. First, uh, if you or someone in your home is under the age of 21, you should not drink alcohol. Not because it's unwise, but because it's illegal. Right? And it's, it it's defies the laws of our government in a way that doesn't contradict Scripture. And where the laws of our government don't contradict Scripture, we're told to submit. So if you're under the age of 21, you have children under the age of 21, shouldn't drink alcohol. Right? Period. That one was easy. Okay? Here's some more. If you or your family has a, uh, a history of addiction or history of alcoholism, it would be very unwise for you to drink. It would be very unwise. Okay, and really that kind of leads to my second question. So the, the, the first one was, what's the wise thing to do? Here's, here's the second one. Am I a slave to alcohol? Right, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. Paul writes this. All things are lawful for me. Some translations say permissible, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated, or, or some translations say enslaved, by anything. Now here's the thing. When we think of being enslaved to alcohol, most of us, our mind goes to like the town drunk. Otis, if you're old enough to remember, if you're old enough to remember that. Right? Most of our, when we think of like someone being enslaved to alcohol, we think of someone who has ruined their life with reckless drinking. Someone that like is constantly drunk, like they've got medical issues because of it. And that certainly would be being enslaved to alcohol. But let me, let me submit these, these to you. If you can't calm down after work without having a drink, there's a good chance you're enslaved to alcohol. If you can't go to bed at night without having a drink, there's a good chance you're enslaved. If you can't make it through the day without a drink of some kind, there's a pretty good chance you're enslaved. If you can't stop drinking once you've started, or you have no awareness of where the line is between what's permissible and what's prohibited, you might be enslaved to alcohol. These are all sort of evidences of being dominated and enslaved to it. And I'll add, I'll add one more thing. Oftentimes when it comes to, um, we don't really have time to fully unpack it here, but oftentimes when it comes to someone overindulging in substances of any kind, whether it's alcohol or drugs or whatever, usually, I don't know if I want to say usually, but, but oftentimes, that thing that they're enslaved to, that they've given themselves over to, been dominated to, is just a mask that's used to sort of hide a deeper issue. Right, like maybe a, a past traumatic experience, maybe there's some area of brokenness, something that you don't want to deal with at a soul level, do the hard work of of, of dealing with that at a soul level, and so you, you just numb it with any substance. Right? But, but as I've, I've heard it said before, you cannot heal what you cannot feel. So you're not going to heal that part of your life by just continuing covering it up, 
masking it, hiding it with substances. Right? So recap the questions. What's the wise thing to do? Am I a slave to alcohol? Then here's, here's the third one. How will my decision affect others? Romans 14, verse 20. Paul says, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Part of us as the people of God living in like, God's wisdom is to recognize that our decisions don't affect just us. Right? Your decisions do not just affect you. Right? We lose sight of that because we live in sort of a hyper-individualistic Society, right, where everything revolves around, around me. Like we love us some us. Okay, but, but the, the people of God are called to something higher. Right, the people of God, we're fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. Like there's horizontal relationships here, and we're called to remember those things as we live. This is what we're called to. Right, I could go show you this. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians um, quite a bit. Considering others, but, but general summation, here's, here's what he says. We're called to be conscious of how our decisions and actions affect others. We're called to live in such a way that we do not intentionally cause brothers and sisters to stumble and that we do not intentionally offend those whose consciences are different than our own. All right, there's the summary of Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians. All right, but to bring it back to Sort of the whole point of this series is we talk about uh, raising the next generation, teaching, training, equipping the next generation. Right? We're also to consider how our freedoms affect not only just one another in this room, but how our freedoms affect our children and our grandchildren and how they're going to navigate these things. Right? Because... You guys have heard the saying before, we all know it when, it, when it comes to raising children, more is caught than taught. And so we can say all that we want, but the reality is our children and our grandchildren and the next generation, they're watching us. And they're going to learn from us. Now you, you, you've heard the, the saying before, we're going to practice what we preach, Right? It's not enough to just teach. We want to model lives for our children, for our grandchildren that are honoring and pleasing to the Lord. Right? And, and how we approach this issue, how we handle this, how we navigate this in our own homes, in our own lives, our children and our grandchildren are watching. They just are. And so I think we would be wise to adopt Paul's counsel in 1 Corinthians when he tells them, hey, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In other words, we want to live in such a way that our children could look at us, our grandchildren could look at us and say, that's what a life looks like that's honoring and pleasing to the Lord. Like, that's how we want to live. And so here's where I'll land the plane. Just before Paul tells uh, the, the Corinthians to imitate him, verse I just referenced, at the end of 1 
Corinthians 10. Um, Paul's talking about kind of considering the consciences of others and, uh, you know, using, kind of, kind of factoring in what others think and their consciences as we make decisions on what to eat or what not to eat or what to drink or what not to drink. And here's how Paul sort of concludes that argument. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, a verse that many of you are familiar with. It says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This should be our aim in all things. To, to glorify God. To make much of God. To worship God. To make God a, a big deal in our lives, in our homes, in our families. And we do that by living in submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. By striving to live according to the wisdom of God's word. None of us nail it all the time. Right, but striving to live according to the wisdom of God's word. And trusting that in our striving, the spirit of God will guide us and transform us more and more and more into the image of Christ. Right? In, in all things. In all things. All right? Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you. Um, Lord, just grateful for your word. Grateful for wisdom. And uh, Father, I, it is not lost on me that to come into this context and talk about something like this can produce a lot of different feelings from a lot of different people. Uh, and so, Lord, I, I pray that um, just in this moment, uh, as we hopefully take these questions and ask them and apply them to our own lives, uh, Lord, I pray that we would not, um, I pray that we would not be driven by just emotions or driven by uh, traditions. I pray that we'd be driven by your word and by your spirit. And so Lord, help us to, to think and reflect on our own lives. Um, or how do we approach this? How do we navigate this in our own homes, in our own families? Lord, are we living in a way in this matter, but in any number of matters, are we living in a way in which our, our children and grandchildren, other believers could look at us and say that's a life I want to imitate because that's a life that's honoring and pleasing to the Lord so would you help us to take account of our lives I, for some of us Lord in this area of how we navigate alcohol in our homes Lord we, we need a lot of wisdom in that Lord I have no doubt there's in this room there's some of us that need to repent of that some of us maybe just need to start thinking because we've never really put a lot of thought into it. But Lord, let's expand that even. I know we've talked about one thing here this morning, but we kind of wrap up this series on the home and the family and raising the next generation, Lord, as those of us, men and women, uh, who are entrusted with the weighty task of raising the next generation in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Or would you bring conviction where we have not done that? Lord, where there's areas in our lives where we have, uh, we have failed to imitate Christ and so we don't have any grounds to tell our children and grandchildren and 
to imitate us? Would you convict us where we have, where we have sinned? And Lord, would you transform us? Not from the outside in, not with more rules, not with more uh, hoops to jump through. But Lord, would you transform us from the inside out? Convict us by your spirit. Help us to respond to the conviction of your spirit. To make the changes necessary to live in a way that, that whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever we do, we give glory to you. And so, Father, I, I trust your spirit in this moment to bring conviction where necessary, to guide us to respond as you would have us to respond. So I trust that you would do that. I, Lord, I can't bring conviction. That's a work that you have to do. I can't bring transformation. That's a work that you have to do. And so I'm asking you to do it. I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name.